If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Hello and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises, and today I'm joined by our own Danny Crichton. Hi. Hi, Danny. And Crunchbase News Editor Alex Wilhelm. Hello, everybody. Hello, Alex. And also with us in the studio this week is Rory O'Driscoll, a general partner at Scale Venture Partners. Rory, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome, Connie. Glad to be here. (laughs) Well, this was a great week, actually, for for topics kind of in our wheelhouse. I was uh, really excited to see the Twilio SendGrid news. Uh, if you're a little bit behind, Twilio is going to buy SendGrid for about $2 billion in all stock, uh, according to TechCrunch. And what's fun about this deal is that we're seeing two relatively recent technology IPOs uh, kind of come together. So Twilio, if I recall correctly, was a mid-2016 IPO. SendGrid was a late 2017 IPO, so a much more recent offering. And uh, it's a big deal. It's kind of this mid middle size uh, kind of SaaS MA we don't see too often. And I, I thought it was super exciting. I have some numbers for us. Um, Twilio, I think, went public back at like $15 a share. Now it's a little bit over $70. Uh, SendGrid went public for $16. Now it's about $35. So pretty strong results from both of these companies. And um, if the deal gets all wrapped up the way we think it is, we're going to have one heck of a uh, kind of API-powered you know, communications platform. So First up, Connie, were you surprised to see the deal happen? Well, I wasn't surprised to see the deal happen, mostly because uh, email service providers seem to be sort of a very hot commodity. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of sort of um, acquisitions in this space. Uh, I don't think that's uh, over time. So, for example, uh, Mad Mimi a couple of years ago was acquired by GoDaddy. Um, Last year, a couple of years ago, Constant Contact, I remember, was acquired for about a billion dollars. Um, interestingly, there's one of uh, one of the sort of um, holdouts is Mailchimp, which is this company that's valued at I think about four billion dollars, and the owners um, mostly own it, and apparently they have no interest in um, going public or selling stakes in the in the firm, which uh, I think is interesting. Forbes just did a really great profile on those guys. Rory, what do you think? Yeah, look, I actually thought the deal made a ton of sense, and um, I think that it's not just that it's an email provider, you know, I think that, you know, for example, Twilio would never have bought um, MailChimp Mm -hmm. because MailChimp is kind of focused on the end business customer, very SMB centric, whereas SendGrid and Twilio were both API centric companies, very much focused on the developers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the rare deal, a rare consolidation deal that just makes a ton of sense on every dimension. They pursue roughly the same business model. Twilio nails it for calls, Twilio nails it for SMS. And if you want to communicate with your customers, you probably want to communicate on any dimension that the customer wants to be communicated with. So, having the ability to access that across email as well just makes a ton of sense. And so I thought the deal on its on its merits made a ton of sense. I mean, you can look at the valuation and go, oh, my God, but you really shouldn't because both stocks are, you know, astonishingly high priced. So you're just effectively trading like for like, you know, both are trading well, well north of 10 times revenues. So, you know, I'll gladly swap my expensive stock for your expensive stock. <laughs> right, right. So it made a ton of sense. <laughs> Twilio is up something like 220% this it's, year. It's been crazy. It's pretty crazy. Although... 
Although it looked like investors didn't love it. it. Twilio went down slightly on the news and SendGrid shot up something like 15%. Um, what's also interesting about this deal is both were Techstars deals. So I saw David Cohen, who was the managing director and co-founder of Techstars, sort of very pleased to see one of his, uh, you know, seed investments acquire another for billions of dollars. Also, this comes in the, uh, the context of the uh, recent Marketo deal uh, with Adobe. Marketo was another player in the email space. And that was, I think it was like four point. Seven five billion dollars. Danny, is that right? It sounds yeah. about right. So, I mean, there's been seven yeah, no, that... eight billion dollars in like M and A, and this was seven billion, I guess, of email M and A in the last couple of months. That's fantastic. Yeah, totally true. I mean, I would say uh, in, in defense of Marketo, because they're not here, they'd die or perhaps kill you if you call them an email provider. They would hastily say they're a marketing automation company focused on the enterprise. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Of course, they do send via email, but yeah, I, I, that's a definitely a fascinating deal because you know you saw a you know, an acquisition three four years ago by Vista when they took Marketo private at you know around six times run rate revenues, and everyone said you know wow pricey deal, wonder how that'll work out. You fast forward just under three years, it sells for ten or eleven times revenues. It's grown in the interim. Vista, you know, make a three x on their money, which mm -hmm. isn't that exciting when you're a venture guy and you make three x on a, you know ten million bucks. But they put in one and a half billion dollars, so Vista took home four and a half billion dollars for three years' work. So I think it's a huge deal. Different market than Send, you know, SendGrid and Twilio, but you know, an astonishing creation of value that I'm sure every private equity firm on the planet is looking on, you know, green with envy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, and I guess you guys probably know this better than I do. It sounds like SendGrid will become a wholly owned subsidiary. Is that brand going away? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. I mean, a wholly owned subsidiary, that can mean uh, the legal form doesn't matter all that much. What I, this, I think Jeff Twilio is a super smart guy. Sanguine's a good brand. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they'll keep it because why kill the goodwill, especially with developers? Yeah, I, I like that. And I, I'm just I'm curious if we're going to see more kind of um, SaaS M&A while SaaS stocks are so uh, extended in terms of uh, revenue multiples, as Rory pointed out. Because right now they have just a lot of extra firepower. <laughs> but if they're buying other SaaS companies, it's still right. kind of an expensive transaction because everyone's richly valued. Um, but right. that is the companies that are already public. Uh, there is a lot of chatter going on about who may be next. Um, Danny, what's going on? Well, there, there, there's been a long list of unicorns that we've known for many years, uh, Palantir, Uber, Lyft. Um, and it looks like they're all sort of getting on deck to go IPO in 2019. So I think the most interesting one uh, is, is Palantir. So this is a 2004 company. So it, it, we're approaching 15 years in the history here. But now there are rumors that um, Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley are looking to take the company public um, for a valuation of as high as $41 billion. And so it, nothing's guaranteed. It's early sort of first half 2019. It's very vague. But I think, uh, you know, they're starting to think through kind of the options that, you know, this very um, robust kind of public markets uh, are creating for them. It's I mean, let's just underscore that valuation. Forty billion dollars. So I think it's revenue this year was expected to be, according to a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal today, around seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, the journal noted that a competitor, uh, Tableau Software, which went public in 2013, has a market value of around nine. $9 billion, and it's um, expected to post revenue this year of around $980 million. So this which, which lends me to say that that's absolute rubbish. Sure. I mean, at the risk of going out on a limb here, right? Uh, I feel like, you know, I'd gladly sell all the Palantir I own and even some Palantir I don't yet own at $40 billion if you're a buyer in a synthetic trade. I mean, yeah, there's 53 SaaS companies out there, the highest revenue multiple. 
is probably Okta, which is 16 times run rate growing at 50% mm-hmm. year on year. So just from a metric, independent of knowing about yeah, the specifics of the company, if it really is going from 600 to 750, that's you know, 25% growth rate. Why would it price at four times the multiple of the most expensive company that's growing faster? To me, that number is a floated number. I, I, I Well, never say never because it's a bull market and maybe the story justifies it. But there's simply no way that you can get to that number on any no, kind of math. Absolutely. So it sounds like um, and this has been, you know, sort of suggested in reports about this, that they're trying to, the bankers are trying to land the deal. They're talking to Credit Suisse. They're talking to Morgan Stanley. They're saying, Ooh, work with us. We'll give you the sweet valuation. And something similar happened this week in Uber. I don't know, um, Danny, I, I know you're following this a little bit more closely, but uh, so talk now is that this company is going to go out at potentially $120 billion, which is practically double its valuation um, of, of several months ago. And again, I think you know, the thinking is, you know, this is bankers trying to sort of, you know, present as pretty a picture as they can to the companies uh, in order to land their business. Uh, when you look at Uber, um, mm. look, it'd be one of the largest IPOs of all time, right? But, you know, if you look at the just the raw revenue numbers, so um, Uber recently applied for for debt. So there has been sort of documents circulating with their revenue numbers of around 10 to $11 billion this year, um, up from 775 last year. So you're not only seeing sort of 35% year over year growth, but we're sort of in the, uh, you know, 11 figures category for revenue. So it is really a a one of one kind of unique company coming down the pipeline. But I don't know if I'd pay, you know, 10 or 11 times revenue for a company that's still so deeply unprofitable, has weaker gross margins than software companies, and has incredibly intense global competition, and uh, just loses that much money. Like, to me, it it feels like a stretch. And it just feels like hype. I think Uber's worth a lot of money. I think they've done a lot of great things. But I, I, the $120 billion number, I try to get the math to work uh, in terms of any sort of sane revenue number, thinking about growth. And it just felt ridiculous. I mean, again, as Rory said, never say never. The market's kind of weird right now. Things are pretty optimistic. But dear heavens, it, it just seems like a figure so high that it's it's imagination. It, well, it's it, cheaper it, than the last one we talked about. So it's got something but, but going it's on. But <laughs> like bigger Rory, scale. You know, Rory. it's like it's cheaper on a per sure. dollar revenue basis. But in terms of like the total dollars you have to raise, $120 billion, totally. you have to convince so many more total dollars to show up. Um, I, I Maybe, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to say never because then I always end up looking dumb. But in this case, it, it feels like <laughs> some... What was the old uh, Greenspan term, like irrational exuberance? I think that's where I would put that. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's always worth remembering that Greenspan said irrational exuberance in 1996 in his Senate testimony, and the market went up for three and a half more years. And if you set it out, you missed yeah, the double. Yeah, for sure. So I hear you. You never know. And that's why I buy index. Exactly. You know, one thing I was... One thing I was wondering about, so Palantir used to have a very, there was a sort of a v- vibrant secondary market that was well reported yeah. on. You joked just now, or maybe you weren't joking that you own Palantir. Do you own Palantir? No, I do not. Okay. Okay. I wouldn't. Yeah. Okay. You wouldn't buy No, I, I would I, I tend not to buy because I put my assets in our venture fund and I put my money where my mouth is. I don't tend to buy other privately held stocks separate from our fund. Okay. And the fund never buys secondary shares? Not, again, never say never, but not in okay. a company like Palantir where we're not involved. I just wonder. So I, I don't know if there's sort of a standard operating procedure here, but when a company is sort of talking about going public, do they clamp down on secondary sales typically so that there's sort of- um, It's a know, very interesting point. There mm-hmm. tends increasingly later, there's more restrictions on that. By later, I mean in the last few years. Mm -hmm. There was a point a while back where I think the chairman of the SEC made some comments basically asserting that, you know, these late-stage private companies, 
we look at them and you have kind of many of the same obligations of a public company. Mm-hmm. And I think when that happened, I'm on a board of a couple of companies that are private or recently public. And there's no doubt in my mind that we thought long and hard about what procedures should you have in place, who gets access to information, you know, who can trade on that information. And that kind of Wild West secondary market where if you know something you buy and someone else doesn't, well, is that appropriate anymore? Mm-hmm. And we, we definitely clamped up and kind of tightened down on restrictions. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the same things going on, or at the very least, if they're not clamping down, someone's thought long and hard about the securities law restrictions that mm-hmm. apply here. Mm-hmm. You know, because especially when you have these kind of puff statements in the press, you have to think, do you really want to tr- have someone trade on that information? Right. Well, also, this is not the first time the company has been rumored to be going public. I don't know if they've actually advanced to the point where they've talked to bankers in the past, but the CEO, Alex Karp, has said sort of publicly, um, you know, we're thinking about going public. I think this has been going on for a couple of years, so it's sort of hard to tell if it's yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I think about the two sets of transactions we're talking about, Lyft and Uber are going to go public. Mm-hmm. They have scale, they have a business, and they need money, right? They're not, right, right, they're, right. They're not faking crucially. it here, right. right? They're like picking bankers and doing mm-hmm. stuff. Palantir, is, I can't say never, but it, it strikes me as a less necessary, likely, or obvious IPO. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's put it this. If I was a banker and I was selling my time, I'd be selling my time to Lyft and Uber. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Speaking of Lyft, though, Danny, they're talking about like a $15 billion valuation, so kind of a fraction of the the Uber price. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, similar rumors as Uber. I think, you know, you're starting to see a, a real race for, between the two of them on who can go sort of the, uh, to the public markets first. But um, we, we've seen rumors in the last week that the company is going to do uh, a $15 billion public um, sort of valuation early next year, you know, think first half. Um Obviously, I think the big, you know, headline number here is that it's it's what eight percent of, of sort of the Uber valuation, right? And and as the Wall Street Journal pointed out this morning, um, one hundred twenty billion for Uber is more than the market caps of General Motors, Ford Motors, and Fiat Chrysler combined, <laughs> combined. Um, for someone who's just sort of ride hailing from an app. So, you know, Lyft seems to be doing fine. Uh, it's still focused on the U.S. market. Uh, I think the numbers are sort of kind of in line with where Uber is. But obviously, these two companies had really, really different trajectories. And now it's a race to the finish line. Yeah, I did a little bit of kind of math magic, um, looking at both Uber and Lyft's H1 revenue, and then trying to model it out a little bit for H2 to kind of come up with the 2018 full year revenue kind of expectation, and then compared the two to these uh, 120 and $15 billion valuations. And Lyft came out a little bit cheaper. Um, in the end. Yeah. And so maybe that means that the lift number is a little bit more sane. But, you know, when you're doing math that's that loose, you really don't want to trust your own conclusions too much. But um, even with that sort of math, Uber looked at 120 a bit nuts. So, I mean, we'll see. Rory, do you think it matters who goes public first? Not as much, not in this case. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes there's, there's times when it does, times when it doesn't. I think in this case, um, look, it would matter, for example, if one of them got out and then the window shut and the other it was just effectively without capital. Then you could look back three, four years later and say, oh, my God, that moment when you got out was strategically important. Mm-hmm. But if, especially in this case, if one goes public in spring and the other goes public in fall or even a year later, mm-hmm. I don't think it matters that much in this case. They both have scale. I mean, one of the interesting things here is there's an implicit assumption, and I was wrong about this four or five years ago. It's not my space, so I wasn't investing. But, you know, you would have thought Uber would have just rolled over Lyft. But it turns out that once you get to critical mass of drivers, 
it's not a winner take all. It's kind of a little oligopoly. So I think the implicit statement in these is that Lyft is a player in the U.S. It's kind of a 70-30 market share in the U.S. and they haven't done the overseas stuff that Uber has to the same extent. But I think implicit in this conversation is that both of them are viable companies, hopefully converging on profitability and aren't going to go away. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's room for two in the market. And if there's room for two in the kind of commercial market, then Wall Street will be totally fine with making money twice. God bless them. <laughs> well, the, bankers, the bankers always get paid. So that's the way the world works. Exactly. Well, talking about profitability, so one interesting company, Tencent Music, announced, uh, I want to say about two, three weeks ago, that they were going to do a public process uh, targeting a raise of $2 billion at a valuation of 30 uh, but has actually delayed its IPO, uh, partly because of the market kind of um, – mumbo jumbo last week with the Dow crashing and, and NASDAQ doing uh, quite poorly as well, but also because generally the, the Chinese uh, tech stocks that have IPO this year have really performed dismally in the last couple of months. So there's only been about maybe three or four out of 30 that have really gone up. And so I think that there's a huge question of like, you know, how robust really is the market today? Um, you know, this was sort of one of the more heralded, it's a profitable company, it's doing very well, um, had a pretext profit of almost 300 million bucks, uh, and it can't even go out. So, I, you know, it'll be a question, I think, on Uber, Lyft, all these guys, you know, who are unprofitable and who seems to have declining growth, whether they can make it next year. I'd be I mean, I'd be wary of a kind of cross-referencing from Tencent to Uber, Lyft. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right about the U.S. decline, but I think the decline in the Chinese market has been significantly higher. And I think there's a lot more dynamics in that market, both in terms of um, – Percentage decline, I think it's been 30% versus 10 or 15 in the US. I think Tencent Music is wildly profitable and doesn't clearly need the money, so they're perhaps going to pause. And, and, and to be fair, they also said they're only going to pause a few weeks to check it mm -hmm. out. It's not clear to me that it's a kind of ringing of the bell that's the end of the market. I think it's more a remarkably bad timing to unveil your IPO in the first week in October and have the market go down in the second so they're perhaps just pausing for a few weeks to see what's the world I doing. So. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple, been a couple of really strong uh, Chinese I list Chinese companies listing in the United States this year, like Huaya, the streaming company's done really, really well. I think Billy Billy, uh, which is the video share site, is doing very well. So there's a couple of of strong offerings. There's been a couple of weaker ones, like uh, Neo recently popped up and has given back nearly all of its gains. Um, so maybe there's some concern about Chinese listings here. I mean, there's been I, I want to say several dozen. Um, this year, kind of a historic number of, of tech shops coming to the United States. So maybe there's fatigue, but I, I thought the Tencent Music uh, F1 was fantastic. Um, fast growth, quick gross, mar quick, growth, quick gross profit growth. I mean, it just seemed great. So I'm surprised. So yeah, I, I, I've been following it, but I think is, is, Dan, uh, is it coming back in November, right? I mean, they just yeah, said just, the pausing, yeah. they might reevaluate in a few mm -hmm. weeks, which mm -hmm. makes sense. You're right. just sitting there going, Let's right. And there's happens. a lot of sort of distracting global totally. events happening right now. You think? So. <laughs> you think? Well, and they're profitable, right? So they actually have control, uh, a ball yes. control here, right? So they can go par anytime. Exactly right. So pick the ideal time. But, you know, we've also had some other um, private fundraisers that are also really interesting. So, Connie, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about Instacart? Sure. So Instacart uh, was one of the biggest rounds this week. Um, this is the company that I feel like has gotten like punched in the face repeatedly and keeps popping right <laughs> back up and barreling forward. So uh, it just raised a $600 million round of funding at I think like a $7.6 billion valuation. Um, that's 
you know, um, it's interesting. I mean, these companies that, you know, they raise serially. So it's sort of, you know, you almost don't pay attention after a while. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting about this deal was who's backing it. Uh, it's a firm called D1. Oh, gosh. Of course, now D1 I can't Capital remember exactly the, the firm. Um, D1 Capital, thank you so much. So the founder of this, is his name is Daniel Sondheim, and he long worked for the hedge fund um, Viking Global Partners. I guess he joined it in 2002 as an analyst and left um, not that long ago because he didn't have as flexible a mandate as he wanted. And um, Viking manages tens of billions of dollars, and I guess $8 billion went out the door with this guy. Um, so he's in the process of raising a $4 billion hedge fund, which apparently is going to be one of the biggest this year. I don't follow the hedge fund world, but um, I think it's interesting that this is sort of his first big bet. Um, but probably not shocking, considering that Instacart looked like it was in danger of um, maybe being sort of um, – kicked out of the race when Amazon acquired Whole Foods last year. But uh, Instacart keeps stri striking deals. Are you guys following its its growth trajectory? You know, looking at, I mean, it's, first of all, it's super hard to know mm -hmm. what's going on in any private company, in particular a company like this, for reasons I'll come to in a second. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I think the Instacart bet is really simple. Everyone else in retail scared of Amazon. Mm -hmm. Whatever Amazon has, everyone else in retail needs to buy one of. And if Instacart's selling home delivery and Amazon has home delivery, then by God, Kroger's is going to buy home delivery too. Right. And, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We'll hold that thought for later too. And it seems like everybody is Amazon's enemy and everybody is working with Instacart. I mean, it's Absolutely. got deals with Kroger, Sam's Club, uh, Albertsons, I mean, Walmart. To a rounding error. Everyone is Amazon's enemy. <laughs> right, I mean, right, right. I, I said it glibly, but it's sure. also true. I mean, every every tech company is thinking what's AWS doing. Every physical company is thinking what Amazon's doing. And there was 17% of the GDP that was healthcare, and they said, hell, we'll have a go there too. Right. <laughs> so every executive on the planet thinks about Jeffrey. It'll be an interesting five years. No, no, absolutely. Um, and even today, I think there was an announcement that it has it's sort of strengthened its ties with. Um, uh, Sam's Club stores. Yeah. I think it's going to be offering it uh, its services in like a hundred new stores, uh, which reaches you know I guess a thousand new zip codes. It's it's striking deals every day. But um, when I say it was it seemed like it was getting punched in the face, I mean it just it, it's it's gone through a lot of sort of and overcome a lot of bad publicity. I think it had done some things wrong. I mean it's a six year old company based in San Francisco, but um, for example, it, you know uh, it had been um, I think settled with employees last year like a four billion excuse me four million ish a dollar suit. Uh, they had said that they were, um, for example, not getting reimbursed for their work expenses. And there was sort of like a, a scandal over tipping. Oh, yeah. They weren't making it very easy for their uh, employees to get tipped. So they've had some uh, bad press for sure. But I feel like um, it's such a it's such a good service. People really like it when they use it. Um, and I think actually they like it slightly better than Amazon, which is what is it? its service called? Uh, Amazon Fresh Prime or Fresh. something. So, but yeah. apparently, you know, the interface is a little bit easier. Um, what's interesting is they both offer subscription services. I think so Prime, you get your free deliveries if you're a Prime member. And yep. with with $119 Prime membership, you get lots of things. Prime Video, yep. um, this the service with um, – uh, uh, Instacart. Instacart, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's um, maybe like $149 a month. I mean, excuse me, a year. Or if you spend more than $35 a year and you – anyway, if you become a member, it's sort it. of unlimited yeah. free. But it's it's not quite as compelling. So No, I, mean, like, I think it's – look, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, kind of started – the other stuff that happened, you know, they're all legitimate issues mm -hmm. and, you know, needed to be rectified. But, you know, you're dealing with a company that's gone from nothing to I think they have exactly. 50,000 shoppers or maybe more, mm -hmm. right? Stuff's going to happen right. in six in six years. 
yeah, the company's not going to rise and fall on that kind of stuff. It's going to rise and fall on the fact that it's a brutally competitive business to deliver groceries for very thin margins. I mean, if you're selling the groceries in the store, you make 2% margins. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what margins you make if you deliver them to home, but I think the million-dollar question, and that's why I said earlier it's hard to know what's going on. For these kind of businesses, revenue growth is not a meaningful proxy for mm. is there a business here mm. because – by definition, anyone can grow revenue in the grocery business if you're willing to lose money mm -hmm. because I'll gladly take a subsidized. I mean, sure. everyone has subsidized groceries from fill in the blank. Um, and I think the real question is when you try and normalize to make a buck, to make a profit, you know, what, how does the economic model work out? I mean, I think Good Eggs is an interesting example where they were trying to go fast in the delivery business. Mm -hmm. And then when they really tried to get profitable, they focus down on a few markets. Frankly, they focus on consumers who are willing to pay the difference, who could pay, you know, more affluent consumers right. who could pay for that home delivery because mm -hmm. otherwise the economics don't make sense. And I believe, though I haven't seen the numbers, that Good Eggs has now built a profitable, sustainable, much smaller business. I think the really interesting thing is for Instacart, can you do it at scale? What do those economics look like? Right, and right. until you see those numbers, you really don't have a It's sense. hard to know. But I did mangle what I was trying to say earlier. You pay $149 a year and you can get free shipping when you spend over $35. But Makes again, sense. that's a very small amount to, yes, to, to ship down. something for free. Exactly. So to your point, who knows what its numbers really look like. Before we go, um, and we don't want to linger on this too long, but one of the biggest stories this week, we were talking about how there's sort of, you know, international relations that are kind of, you know, putting a sort of causing people to sort of take a step back. Um, we had talked a little bit about Saudi Arabia last week. Um, nothing much more to tell about that story, except it's been sort of interesting to see, you know, a, a growing number of um, executives in Silicon Valley and Wall Street sort of take a step back and sort of ask what they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, I'd written a story that's uh, gotten some traction this week about uh, just how much money Silicon Valley has raised from um, Saudi Arabia. And if, uh, so these allegations about um, this missing journalist um, are are proven. I don't know if that's even possible to do. It's going to make it a lot harder for these companies to go back to uh, Saudi Arabia, at least anytime soon, which I feel like could have a very material impact on what's happening here. I mean, $11 billion has been invested in Silicon Valley startups over the last couple of years, which is a shocking number, you know, amount of money. I don't think people really realize that it's largely responsible for some of the valuations and the serial rounds that we're seeing and also, you know, extenuating the life of some of these startups. Rory, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of different things. That are, of that $11 billion, how much of that was via the Vision Fund or directly from Saudi Arabia? I don't know. This was a Wall Street Journal study. It's funny. I, the, the journal had said $11 billion, then I'd separately seen that SoftBank has invested something like 24-ish, 26 yeah. billion in Silicon okay. Valley companies. So the, the Vision Fund, I mean, sorry, I'm sorry, Saudi Arabia makes up about half of the Vision Fund, totally. 45%. So, uh, so uh, roughly 12 billion, I would th say. That would make sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, which, which is why, you know, there's a bunch of different things. I mean, obviously starting with the fact that whatever happened is clearly appalling and horrific. And right. the classic proof, I mean, I think the New York Times quoted it today. I would have quoted it already, you know. Yeah, you know, ten thousand dead people in Yemeni is a statistic. One this. dead journalist mm -hmm. in Turkey is a tragedy, right. Right? right? And it's just so viscerally obvious what happened that everyone can kind of get their head around it and be appalled. Right. So that's clearly an obvious, and you know, we don't need tech people to comment on you know, the horrific awfulness of that. Mm -hmm. What you're really asking about is the flow through here, right? Exactly. First of all, you're right. Everyone instantly cancels cancels their flight to the Davos of the desert. Mm -hmm. Why would you go? Right. I mean, what path? Especially if you're a what I'll call minor league affiliated to 
the Saudi kind of government in any way. It, it's not a binding commitment. I mean, so you know, most tech people will just say, no, thanks, not going. I think it's extremely hard if you're the vision fund because you know, your, your single largest LP mm-hmm. is in this imbroglio. So you're probably putting your head down and waiting. And they've to see said actually up. for the first yeah. time that they're not positive all of a sudden that they are, there is going to be a second vision fund. Yeah, they're that would, that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's always true for all of us. I never know. But they've said, no, no, they've, I mean, Masa Yoshi yeah. who's the CEO of SoftBank, has yeah. said numerous times there will be a, a number of these funds to come. So this is well, a very I, I, exactly. I mean, look, yes, I think that if you have a huge fund, if you have a fund that's 10x larger than any fund on the planet, mm-hmm. and if the only reason you raise that fund is one of your LPs give you five times the largest, $45 mm-hmm. billion, dollars, mm-hmm. and that LP suddenly becomes persona non grata, right. then by definition, you didn't need him to say there mightn't be an exhibition fund. Of course, there mightn't be, right? It boils down to what happens next. Or right? everybody has to downsize their ambitions. But anyway, so, the point is, I know it's an ugly story and people don't like to talk about it, but it could have a very big impact in Silicon Valley. I, I think it has some impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, look, the Valley was the Valley. Tech, w- what I generally find is, mm-hmm. you know, capital comes when there's an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. if the vision fund went away, a couple of fairly high-priced exits wouldn't happen. A couple of fairly high-priced rounds wouldn't happen. But, you know, more money will come. I mean, let's take Uber, for example. Had, you know, uh, the Vision Fund not been there, there's no doubt that it played actually fairly, it seems, productive role in mm. kind of cleaning up the mess and the argument, paying off everyone, so sure. buying out everyone to clean up that. But had it not happened, someone else would have stepped well, up. Well, you know who might have stepped up? Public shareholders. <laughs> that's exactly right. They would have gone public. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. So I think that's... that's exactly. Know, Thank God, because you know, otherwise we wouldn't have a podcast. in this <laughs> crazy story. <laughs> Anyway, guys, I think we're out of time. Rory, thank you so much. It's been thank really so a pleasure much. having you here. Thank you very much. Glad thank to be you, here. Thank you, Danny. See you, Alex. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>